Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. You got to be in church today. Let's go. Come on. <clears throat> Some of you are like, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm hoping, withholding my applause. But hey, before we get into the message today, you know, last week we kind of took a poll and just asking questions about, hey, what are things that you are talking about, your friends are talking about that we're seeing in culture? And so we took a poll just to kind of outline maybe our next series, we deal, deal with some of those issues. So next week, next Sunday, we'll be starting the, that series. Um, and the number one, the topic we're going to start off with is politics. And so some of you should invite a friend, maybe someone that doesn't believe like you, so I could convince them to believe like you. Or maybe I'll convince you to believe like them. Who knows, right? So, um, but it's going to be a great series. You know, there's a time when, um, you know, the world is full of opinions and what the world needs is someone who has some conviction. And so we want you to be people who have conviction. So you don't want to miss out on that series. And so we are today going through uh, this series called So Loved. Let me hear you say this. I am so loved. Turn to someone next to you and say, you are so beautiful. I tricked you, but um, you get what's going on there, right? I'm so loved. And we just, we just started unpacking this verse that's very familiar to us. And sometimes when things get so familiar, they begin to lose its relevancy and its power. And so we just kind of centered last week around John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, would not die, but would have eternal life, right? Eternal life. This is the goal of when we follow Jesus, Jesus wants us to have a life that is full, a full life. And we like full things, don't we? I mean, we like full glasses. We like full plates. We like full bank accounts. We like full houses. Like anybody got more junk in your house and you know what to do with right now? Like my wife was telling me this just yesterday on the way out, like we got to empty these drawers. I'm like, that's all my stuff. Leave it alone. But we, 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 we get full. We just fill things up in life. We want full. It's better for us. And so today I want to ask the question um, and kind of unpack this question. And how has God loved us? How, how has God loved us? Like if God loves us, if it's a game changer, if it gives us purpose, it gives us a reason to get up in the morning, like how does that happen? What does that look like? You know, I don't know if any of you are <clears throat> into poetry, but maybe you've heard of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sonnet number 43. Anybody? The most famous love poem ever written. Anybody over here? Right? You got it, right? So how have I loved thee? What? Let me count the ways. Let me count the ways. How have I loved thee? It's where when we were in middle school, we got, you know, you get the flower and you, you, had a, you were crushing on somebody and you want to know if they were crushing on you. You go, you pull petals off one at a time. He loves me. He loves me not. You remember that? Anybody else do that? You know what I'm talking about? Right. And then he loves me. He loves me not. Oh, the petals are gone. Let me get another one. Right. We, we knew the right answer. But, but how has he loved us? This is the question. And in the Bible, we just see that at times people ask God this question, like, how have you loved us? In um, Malachi chapter uh, 1, it says this. Says, God is speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So what has happened is that God's people are questioning his love for them. They, they face some difficulties in life. They, they aren't living in the freedom God had for them. They're looking at their circumstances and they're hard. They're like, and how have you loved us? And sometimes we ask the same question. You know, we ask the question when, when, when we just forget the ways that God loves us. So, for instance, when we forget that the reason I can breathe right now is because God loves me. Man, what about the, the great things that you eat? You're going to get to go eat lunch somewhere today. It, it may not be good for you, but it'll be good. And you picked it because you like it. <sighs> Man, it's just because God loves you. Man, 
man, what about this weather the last few days? Like, hasn't it been amazing? I mean, this is why you live in Atlanta and not Michigan. It's because God loves Atlanta more than Michigan. <laughs> Come on. I mean, all the good things in life, we tend to take for granted. But that's, we have those because God loves us. But then sometimes we face some situations in life. And we'll, we can go through some tragedy. Someone close to us dies. Man, our dreams disappoint us. And we look around and we say, if God loved me, why? And we fill in the blank. And we forget that God loves us. So we want to be able to unpack that just a little bit today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start out by just talking about the strength and the power of God's love. Like it's not some anemic fairy dust that gets sprinkled on us that we just accept everything in the world. But it's actually this powerful, forceful uh, power in the world that actually is weaved into the world that makes the world go round. And then I'm going to go through five different ways God loves us and then five different images from the Bible. So I'm going to talk about the power of God's love, five ways God loves us, five images. And so you're going to want to write those down. But let me start with this question on a scale of one to ten. How loved do you feel by God right now? Like, like a one is, like, you don't even know if you believe in God, right? Your team lost yesterday. Um, you know, you were an Alabama fan. Um, and Auburn, somebody like that, you're like, I don't know. Life's not going good. Your relationships are a mess. You're not even sure God's real. Or a ten, life's perfect. Every, you wake up with joy and kindness. Everybody loves you. He's patting you on the back. I mean, and you feel a ten. And somewhere in between there is probably where most of us live. And so my hope over the rest of the, the next, you know, 30 minutes that we have together, my hope is that we can move that at least one degree, Okay. One degree, one degree, one, on a scale of one to ten. So let's grab our Bible. It's going to be in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to start out in verse 12. I'm going to be all, in a lot of different places in the Bible today. But hopefully you brought your Bible. If not, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And so we have some paperbacks. If you would like a nice leather one like this, I think you probably could look in the lost and found and you find one in there and you can just grab it. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, now a little bit to know about what, what is being written here. This is written to a group of people who thought they had it all together. Like they were superior to everybody else. They had spiritual gifts. They were closer to God in their mind than anybody else. They were, they were full of wisdom and knowledge. And so Paul is going to write to them about the primacy of love, the foundation of love in their life. And it's right before a passage that we, you generally hear it read at weddings. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this, I will show you still more excellent way. Like there's a, there's a better way to live. There's another translation that says, um, now let me show you a way of life that is best. I mean, a way of life that's best. Man, you know, love, it's, it's, it's hard to define, but it's easy to recognize. And Paul says it is the best way of life. And so, so a little bit of the imagery that Paul is using is an athletic imagery. And, and he uses it as if you're throwing a ball and, and that you throw it further than everybody else, right? So if you're standing next to love and you both throw a ball, his, love's ball goes further than your ball. If you're having a race with love, love runs faster than your race. I mean, if you're swimming against love, love swims faster than you do. He's just trying to point out that it is the best way to live. It's not like your best life now that we've heard about because you're not getting your best life now, right? Your best life is coming later, and we need to know that. But it is the best way to live now because God has weaved it into the, into the universe. And in 1 Corinthians, um, it, also this, God's love meets our deepest need so we can have a full life. Right? God's love meets our deepest need. 
Like our deepest need is not to eat, it's not to drink, it's not to be able to have some time to watch um, television or to binge on Netflix. Man, our deepest need that God has placed in our hearts is that we would be loved, that we'd have a place to call home is what Paul would say. So, so that is our deepest need, and this is what love does. Love meets us there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, um, Paul's writing this. He says, faith, hope, and love abide. So think about it. Faith, faith abides, and faith is our belief in God. It's our belief that God is good. It's this ability to live into a relationship with God, even though we haven't seen him with our eyes, but we know him in our hearts. That's faith. And then he says, hope. Man, hope is just that there's a future out there for me. I'm going to keep moving on hope. Hope is like oxygen. You can't live without it. And then he says love. But then he says the greatest of these is love. Now, the reason why he says that is because love never ends, he says in another place. That love is the only thing that lasts. When we get to heaven, we don't need faith because we'll see eye to eye. We'll see face to face. We don't need hope because our hope will be realized in Jesus. But we'll still have love. Like love never ends ends. Man, love never quits. You know, it doesn't slow down when things get tough. It doesn't go to sleep when it gets tired. It doesn't back down when the enemy is too big. It doesn't not show up when it gets a better offer. Man, love never quits. There's a guy named Karl Barth who was a a systematic theologian. He wrote a lot of words that were really hard to read. Um, And he wrote roughly 10,000 pages you know, millions of words about God and about theology. Uh, and someone, he was at a symposium once, I think he was at Princeton, and he's on the stage, and students were asking him questions, and they're saying, Dr. Bart, like, what is the greatest thing that, you, that the greatest truth that you've uncovered in all your years of uncovering truths about God and all the depths of research that you've done and the, the, um, the resources that you've had available that no one else has? Like, what's the greatest truth? And Carl Bart answers this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So simple, yet so profound. Love is powerful, like love is a force to be reckoned with. Listen, it takes love to stand up to injustice, doesn't it? It takes love to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. It's love that will help a parent say for their kid to go to college. And it's love that will take the long walk to rehab with their friend. I mean, it's love that will stay in a hospital room while someone goes through chemo. Man, it's love that will sacrificially give to store up treasure in heaven. Man, it's love that will adopt a child who needs a home. Man, love is not some anemic force that's just something that doesn't matter, that doesn't have some power. Man, love is powerful and it is a force to be reckoned with. Love is an active commitment to someone's good. So many times Christians are criticized for standing up for somebody or for something. It's like, well, aren't you, you know, God is love. You're supposed to be about love. You know, you should just, we should just be able to do whatever it is we want to do. And the reality is what love does, it's an active commitment to someone's good. And if I do nothing when I know I can help someone, that's not love. That's actually hate. And so what we love when it comes to who God is, man, God has this active commitment to our good. That's what love is. The strength of God is found in his love for us. Man, we're just wired for it, right? I mean, we're wired for it. Just look at culture. Man, love is big business. Taylor Swift has made a fortune about, after, about writing songs about being scorned in love, right? Right? Like, I mean, how many times do you have to get shut down until you realize there's a common denominator here, right? I mean, what's the deal? 
Hey, two other words that'll tell you. The Bachelor. Any Bachelor fans in here? Any Bachelor fans? Come on. 100 million people watch it every season. $100 million. Love is big business. Matthew McConaughey got rich off of love, romantic comedies. I mean, we know love is big business. And the reason why, it's just wired into our lives. It's wired into our hearts. And, and the problem is, though, is that we settle for counterfeit love. We settle for counterfeit love. You know, we'll try to get the approval of our boss, thinking it's going to give us some value or a teacher. And we'll sacrifice our sexual purity because we think it's going to give us love. And we'll, we'll try to look the part and work out and dress right and eat right so that we can look good, so that we'll get acceptance and value from other people. We'll try to prove things to our parents to try to earn their love. When all the while, what God has done is he put in our hearts this desire for him to love us. That's the reason why we search for love is because God has put that in our hearts and we settle for counterfeit versions of love because we struggle to believe that God loves us and we struggle to believe that that really matters. You know, I know that the question of suffering always comes up when you talk about God loving me because some of you have been through some difficult things, some of us. Uh, you, you maybe you have a dream that died, as I was referencing earlier. You got a bad diagnosis, and you, or you look around at your life, and some circumstances aren't what you would have chosen. You're like, man, if God is love, man, how can these things happen to me? And, there, and there's a lot of answers to that. I mean, there's a, it, that is, uh, you take that on a case-by-case basis. And sometimes what Christians do is we like to use Christian cliches to make people feel better, and they usually don't. Um, because what we say is just comes, it's just really stupid, if we're just honest. Uh, we'll say things that don't matter because we feel the need to say something and we say the wrong things. And so I don't want to unpack everything about suffering and a theology of suffering, but I think there's one thing that if we could grab a hold of, it would help. I think there's one thing today could be our starting point. Now, it's not the end all, and I'm not trying to just give a church answer by any stretch of the imagination. I've had the front seat to a lot of suffering in my life, so I would never want to trivialize it. But I do think this is the first, the place that we start. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? Second thing, 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. See, what I would tell you today, anytime you start wondering about suffering and why and does God love me, Jesus suffered. Amen, right there? Right, Jesus suffered. God himself suffered. And as we look at the suffering of God, we have to just acknowledge that if God suffered, maybe we're gonna, go through, we're gonna suffer. But also, <clears throat> if God suffered, He's going to do something in that that I can never explain or figure out. It's going to be beyond my, my imagination, beyond my ability to comprehend because he is God. I mean, Jesus suffered. And Jesus suffered, like Jesus suffered first. Man, Jesus decided to love us first. He stepped out on a limb first. He didn't wait for us to love him. He, he loved us. He came down to be with us first. Like if you're, if you're in a dating relationship, if you've ever dated or got married, like, you know, you reach that point, like, I want to say I love you, but I don't know if I can. Like, I want them to go first. You go first. No, you go first. And some of you are extroverts, so you just said it the first date, right? Because you're like, love at first sight. I love you. Will you marry me? Um, and so, and he said no. And then, <laughs> um, but, but Jesus goes first. And then he loves us at our worst, and think about the things that he knows about us that nobody else knows. Like, like isn't it a little weird that we, you know, we, we have relationships with people that are contingent upon what they know about us? Because we kind of hide a little bit from people at times. 
He loved us at our worst. He loved us first. And he could have, he could have abandoned the suffering. He could have abandoned it. So, so there, there's, a, there's a place where Jesus is talking about um, this. And, you know, when, when he went to be executed, he says that he could, he could call 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him. Now, let me just explain what that looks like real quick. And stay with me now because it's some numbers, but it's, it's mind-blowing. So a legion was roughly 6,000 soldiers. So he could have called 12 12 legions. Now, now, an angel is not like a normal soldier, okay? In the Bible, we see one angel wipe out 185,000 people at once. So, they're, so they're, they're, they're pretty intense, okay? This is not Cupid with a bow, right? This is, this is powerful. So if, so if you do the math on that, 12 legions of angels is roughly 13 billion soldiers, like four times the population or two, two and a half times the population of the earth. Like, this is what it says was, is what his disposal. And he didn't pick up the phone. He didn't ask. Why? His great love. This is how much God loved us. To sacrifice for us. So as we suffer, what we can know, man, God suffered. God suffered. And what it, the reason we're suffering can't be, based on what we've seen, it can't be that God doesn't love us can't be. So let me jump into five ways, five ways that God has loved us. Now, now when we see the title for God used in the Bible, over 200 times it talks about his steadfast love, his steadfast love, his steadfast love. Some of you maybe that have uh, been studying your Bible for a little while, a lot of times we look at the Old Testament like God was just judgment in the Old Testament. I don't know if any of you ever thought that. Like that, the Old Testament, people get killed. Like that's what we think. But throughout the Old Testament, it talks about God's steadfast love for us. God's steadfast love for us. First, first, first way God loves us, let's look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. It says, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. This is sacrificial love. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Isaiah wrote this 2,000 years before Jesus died, roughly 1,500 years before crucifixion was invented as a form of death. And so clearly this is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus here. When it talks about nail scars, it talks about scars on their hands. Yet this happened thousands of years before Jesus was even born. And so he bears the marks of his love for us on his hands. Like, like some of you guys, some of you and girls, like you may have a tattoo like with your kid's name on it. Anybody got your kid's name on it with their birthday? So you don't forget it. Isn't that why you did that? Because you would. But Jesus has nail scars on his hands. Why? Not so he won't forget, but so we won't forget. In Revelation, it says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So what we see in the Bible is that Jesus' scars will be there forever throughout eternity as symbols of his love for us. He's the only one that will have scars. Like our scars will be gone. Like, isn't that amazing? Like that, that time I fell in the fireplace when I was running across the room, that scar will be gone. <laughs> you know, that surgery I had on my hip, that scar will be gone. That time Dr. Amica dug out a piece of glass when I was a kid, that scar will be gone. That time I kicked that window in, that scar will be gone. Man, that, that time I struggled with my dad's depression, man, that scar will be gone. That time my son almost died, man, that scar, it'll be gone. Like what scars will be gone for you? 
Jesus' scars just remind us how deeply he loves us. Way number one that God does love us is sacrificial love. Hey, number two, Matthew chapter 10 verse 30 says this. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. We came in that water, Svenja. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Like, I don't even know how many numbers, how much hair I have. Do you? Right? I know I used to have a lot more. I mean, that's pretty much all of us. Now, ladies, you know, you know how many gray hairs you have because I'm confident you counted them this morning, right? Um, but we don't even know how many hairs we have on our head. But this just shows you how much God knows us. Like, he knows us more than our friends do. He knows more about us than our friends know. And he knows about our ups and downs. One of the great things that God knows about us, he knows our purpose and why he created us. You know, it says in the Bible that before, before you were born, God formed you in the womb. Like God had a purpose and a plan for you. He created you as a workmanship to do good works that he prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Man, God knows you deeply. And when we love somebody, listen, we get to know them, don't we? We know what their love language is. We know what their favorite food is. We know what their favorite color is. We know what their favorite <coughs> mood is. Man, we know what their pet peeve is. We know. We know when we love people. And this is how God loves us. It's the second way that God loves us. He knows us. Psalm 56 verse 8 says this, You have kept count of my tossings. Now, tossings is just those things that keep us up at night. It's another word for sorrow. You ever tossed and turned at night? You know, you wake up, you start thinking about something, maybe a problem to solve, you know, maybe a, a conflict in a relationship, maybe it's a project due at work, uh, maybe it's a health problem, you know, maybe it's a family issue, a rebellious teenager, you know, and you wake up and you're tossing. It says that God has kept count of my tossing. He put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So think about this. We shed some tears God doesn't just say, hey, suck it up, man. Get moving, right? It doesn't matter. You're going to live in eternity anyway. He doesn't just do that. He takes the tears and he saves them. I can only imagine, like, what tears of yours has God saved? Like, what tears of yours has God saved? You see, the, the third way he, he, he loves us is just by understanding. And he knows your story. He knows when you were abandoned or abused he knows those great dreams. He knows those great failures. He knows when relationship was destroyed. Man, God knows your story is what the psalmist is trying to communicate to us because he loves us. Number four, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, <clears throat> it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Right? Never Ending love. Never ending love. Have you ever noticed how our love has limits on, on people? There's a limit. And, and this is what we'll say. You know what? I love you, but I don't like you. You ever said that? I love you, but I don't like you. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Not a Bible verse. But I think we understand what we're thinking when we say that. Man, I love you. I know I'm supposed to because I have to, but I don't want to be around you. I don't want to celebrate you. Fact, I hope something bad happens to you. Not real bad, just a little bad so I won't feel guilty. Like that's how we think. And God's love is never ending. It's always for our good. It says he has plans to give us a hope 
and a future not to, not to harm us, but to prosper us. Like God's love is never ending. You, you can't go too far. You can't go so far that God doesn't love you. You can't do anything that God is not going to love you through. Now, and in this room, we've probably done some things that we feel like, man, God, I've gone too far for God. I've done some things, and God's not going to love me. But he says here it's never ending. He says that his love is as strong as the grave. The grave has never lost, has it? Except to who? Jesus. This is how strong God's love is for us. Fourth way is never ending. Hey, fifth way that God loves us, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. <clears throat> perfect love casts out fear. God's love, perfect. That's the fifth way God loves us. God loves us perfectly. I mean, I, mean, I love this because it says it casts out fear. And God's love just brings calm in times of uncertainty. And there's something about knowing that God is on our side that just brings calm, helps us to breathe slower, helps us to see with right perspective, help us, helps us just to be settled and at peace. He just brings calm. It helps to remove anxiety. This is the love that God has for us. It's perfect, and it casts out fear. You know, sometimes perfect love, you know, you know, what, you know what you need? I need, I, need, I need someone to push me a little bit. I need someone to challenge me a little bit. I need someone to kind of give me a swift kick, right? I need someone to push me into some accountability at times. You know, there's this theology out there. Sometimes people will say, God just has to hit me with a two-by-four. Anybody ever thought that? God just has to hit me with a two-by-four. Listen, the only time anybody gets hit with a two-by-four in the Bible, it's a donkey, okay? And if you want to compare yourself to a, I mean, a donkey, listen, you go ahead and do that. But this is not the love that God has for us. Yes, man, God's going to discipline us. Yes, He's going to sharpen us because he knows what we could be. But why? Because of his great love for us. He knows what we need at every turn. Psalm 23 is a pretty famous psalm. and It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. So if you look around right now and you feel like you don't have something, you might not need it if God hasn't given it to you. Fifth way that God loves us and his love is perfect. Now let me give you five pictures of how God loves us. Five images from the Bible of how God loves us. <clears throat> First one, Jesus loves us as a bride, right? Jesus loves us as a bride. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I'm sure you have if you've been to a wedding or maybe when you got married, like that there's this point where the groom is standing down front and he's standing with whoever's gonna officiate the wedding and maybe some, some groomsmen and then the bridesmaids come down and then all of a sudden, you know that the bride has showed up down the aisle. How do you know? The groom starts crying. Am I right? Am I right? Come on. The groom starts crying. If you don't think so, just ask Sean Curry. Like, out of control weeping. I'm like, dude, pull yourself together. You're a man. Come on. But we'll talk to him about that later. Right? Man, we, we, there's just this emotion of joy that happens, this emotion, this emotion of I can't believe I get to spend the rest of my life with her. Like that's the emotion that we have. And this is God's view towards us. He is excited about spending the rest of his life, eternity with us. God loves us and guess what? He likes us. God loves us and guess what? He likes us. Now it doesn't mean there's not some imperfections he's not working out um, and there's not some things that he's uh, trying to clean up in our life, but man, God loves us and he likes us. He looks at us like a bride. That's the first picture. Hey, the second picture, 
Jesus loves you as a doctor loves his patient. As a doctor loves his patient. Like most of us don't think our doctor cares about us because here's what happened. We'll get sick like, I ain't calling the doctor, man. He's going to tell me what's wrong. Like, I'm not going. As if it's the doctor's fault we're sick. Have you noticed this? I'm not going. He may tell me I have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, he didn't cause that. I mean, the doctor's goal in your life is to make you healthy. Now, if he has to cause you some pain through surgery or testing or whatever, if he has to give you some bad news, he does that so you can get on a path to good news. Like this is the role of a doctor. Jesus even says it. He says, I didn't come to call the, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so God loves us the way a doctor loves his patient. Listen, he wants you to be better. And he wants you to be whole. He wants you to have a full life. Man, he wants that for you. He's like a doctor, loves a patient. That's the second way. Hey, the third image picture we have, Jesus loves you as a friend. Jesus loves you as a friend. Like I always have some tension with this one. <clears throat> because, you know, with friends, uh, you know, it, it, Jesus' point here is that he's not just in some high off uh, ivory tower somewhere way far away from us, but he comes up close. That Jesus came to walk with us, and then when he died and went into heaven, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And we have God's presence living in us. Now, God is still sovereign, and God is still holy. God is still transcendent. God is still omniscient, omnipresent, all those other words that are tried to describe his holiness. God is still that. But, man, there's this image that we have of him as a friend. It says this, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this is who Jesus is to us. Man, he's not like looking over our shoulder trying to get us in trouble. He's a friend who's trying to help in a time of need. That's the image we have. Man, the, the, uh, the fourth figure I have, the fourth image that I have, and there's so many more in the Bible, um, but Jesus loves you as a brother, as a family member, as someone you grew up with, like you shared shared fun with, shared a room with, shared secrets with, man, celebrated with, fought with probably just a little bit. I wouldn't try, I wouldn't advise that with the Lord, um, but loves us as a brother. It's this family term that we have, man, Jesus loves us as a brother. And then the, that's the fourth one. The last one, <clears throat> it's my favorite. It's probably the most prevalent in the Bible, and it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and it says that he has adopted us into his family. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Children of God. And God sees us as one of his kids. Like, so this is how this works. When we decide to follow Christ, it says we're adopted into the family. Man, adopted means full inheritance, not second-class citizens. Man, full inheritance. That God calls us his kids, calls us his daughter, calls us his Son, that we're adopted into the family. And one of the things that Jesus brought that challenged the religious establishment and challenged um, the Pharisees and the, in, in the Jews of the day was this idea that God was his dad and that he would teach us to pray that way. Maybe you've heard of the, the Lord's Prayer. It starts out with what? Our Father. This idea of God as a dad. Now, now here's where this thing can break down if we're not careful. We have to be really intentional to fight for it. Like your dad may not have been so great. Your dad may have maybe abused you or mistreated you, or maybe he just wasn't there. He was just absent. Maybe he provided financially, but then that was kind of it, and there was so much more you needed from him. And we've got to be careful 
that we don't project our image of our earthly dad onto our heavenly father because they're not the same. Now, clearly, the reason why it hurts us so bad is because our souls are created to have a father. And we need to look to God as our dad. And and to be quite honest, man, our, our earthly dads, they probably did the best they could. Now, now, I don't know what you may have gone through. I certainly wouldn't want to minimize or dismiss that, so don't hear me say that. But as I look back over, my dad passed away in 2015. As I look back over my life, I'm like, oh, he did the best he could. He did the best he could. Even when, it, even when in my teenage mind, because I knew everything like all of us did at 16, even when it didn't look like I wanted it to, man, he did the best he could. But God wants to be a heavenly father. Man, you don't have to earn it. Or deserve it. Like, like, if you think about it, how many parents in the room today? So we got quite a few. Like, doesn't your view of all this change when you have children? Like, you just love them even though they don't do anything. Actually, even though they try to make you not love them for the first two months of their life. Right? And so we, we just love them deeply. And this is the way God looks at us. You know, I have, I have two grandkids now. I know, it's hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> um, but one of them... Uh, is my, uh, my daughter's daughter, that's Lila Jane. Now, the first thing you'll notice about this picture is she is really fat. Like, <laughs> hey, y'all, look at those thighs, guys. Like, man, I mean, like, wildness. Now, my, my daughter already knows I'm going to say that, and she looked about the same, and now she weighs, like, 90 pounds. But, um, like, that's my daughter. And look at the bow on her hair and all that. But you know what's so awesome about that picture? It's not, my, it's not my granddaughter. Look at my wife's face. Man, look at the joy and the satisfaction. Yeah, there you go. And the satisfaction. Man, look at the love in her eyes right there for my little granddaughter, Lila Jane. I have another one, Sage. Sage is a little over a year old, and there she is. And look how cute she is. We're walking down the street in Charleston, so... That's so ironic. Um, we're walking. We're walking. <laughs> we're, yeah, she did that too. Um, well, last night she was at the house. Um, so we're walking down the street in Charleston. Now, first of all, I'm just grateful she's not running around because she runs out in front of cars. But notice her and her eyes and how much fun she's having. But look at me. Man, just joy, right? Just excitement, just hope, just so grateful for what the Lord has done. This is how God looks at us, right? As his kids, this is how God looks at us. God looks at us as a dad. Man, do you think you've done anything to lose God's love? you think you've done anything to lose God's love? You can't. Would I stop loving those girls? Nope. Nope. And God would never stop loving you. Man, there you go, Steph. Hey, the greatest story we have about that in the Bible, the greatest story we have is um, the prodigal son. And it's a real familiar story to a lot of people, but let me just tell it a little bit so we can just wrap our minds around it and hopefully see some of the beauty of that story again in the prodigal son. You know, there was a dad, he had two sons. He had a very large estate, so he had a lot of money. And there was this one son, uh, the younger son, that came to him and says, hey, I think I'm done. I want you to give me my inheritance and I am leaving. Now, in that culture, the dad could have literally, it's going to sound funny, could have given a symbolic backhand and put him in his place and says, you're not going anywhere. You don't get anything. But the dad didn't. See, he could, the dad could have bowed up and powered up on him and used the authority of power on him, but he didn't. 
The dad operated out of the authority of love. And he gives the son his inheritance. And the son goes and sells the land. And it says he goes off to a distant country and he squanders it. Prostitutes, drugs, clubbing, parties. And he loses all of it. And he comes to his senses, it says. He says he wants to go back home. So he says, you know, even the servants in my dad's house have something to eat. So he comes back with the idea of being a servant. Now, so many times when I get an image of that son, I think of someone maybe on a reality TV show, you know, someone who's probably living a life that we would look at as immoral. Man, just feels like they're living the high life. But the truth is, remember, he had nothing. If you've ever been in downtown Atlanta and you've walked by a homeless person, that, that should be your image. Remember the last time you walked by and they were curled up under a bench or next to a building? Remember what that smelled like? They were covered up with some cardboard. You may have even thought, hmm, I wonder what they did to deserve this. This is, the, this is the prodigal son that comes home. He comes home. Dad had every right to say these words to him. I told you so. I told you so. But he doesn't. And dad opens his arms up wide, brings his son home. He says he kills a fatted calf. This is a calf that would have been saved for a big celebration. They throw a big party, man, because his son was lost. Now he's found. His son came home. Why? Because of the dad's love for him. He came home. But there's another brother too, right? The older brother. The older brother hears the music and the dancing. He says, there's a party going on like in my house. So he goes and he finds out it's for his younger brother. He is irate. He can't believe it. Like, why would they throw him a party when I've been here the whole time? And the dad comes out and he says, son, everything I have is yours. And man, he is just condescending and he's judgmental against his, against his younger brother and he can't celebrate. And if we're honest, some of us, at some point in time, were the prodigal son that left home, but a lot of us are the one that stayed home. Man, we look at times we're not invited, and times when we don't get asked, times we're not included, times we're not accepted, and we're like, man, I'm better than them. Man, that, that should have happened for me, and we measure our lives by other people. We measure our lives by other people. And what happens in this passage is that the dad actually asked him to come home too. And sometimes coming home just means loving God back. Loving God back. One of the greatest passages on love in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. I just want to read it to us as we close. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's people? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here we go, how big it is. For I am sure, he writes, that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God's love for us is supernatural. It's not something that we can just figure out. It's something that we can experience. And no matter where you are, God loves you. God loves you. In so many ways, we can't even begin to examine or explain. God loves you. Let's pray together.